0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 20th, 2018, we continue our series titled Ephesians Made Worthy, Walk Worthy. Today's sermon, Beautiful Contrast, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Enjoy! Father and our God, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship and adore you. Lord, we pray that today as we uh, dig into your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal uh, these incredible pastoral charges and encouragements for us to differentiate ourselves from the world. Lord, in this new life that we have in Christ, we pray that we would bring glory and honor to you and represent you in your ultimate beauty. Help us now to grow in your grace and the knowledge of your Son. Amen. Wow. This text, um, for a couple weeks now, um, I've been in this text and studying this text, and uh, uh, it is what I have called a beautiful contrast. And we live in this world where we, we are constantly comparing In fact, most of our social medias are set up as such. And we can't help but get onto whether it's Facebook or other social medias, and we find ourselves taking our kind of our cerebral lowlights and comparing them to other people's highlights. But I want to be clear in today's text, Paul is not comparing. He's not comparing the life of a Christian to the life of a non Christian. He, in fact, is contrasting it, and he's doing it so that you will understand that I will understand that there is a backdrop to which we should differentiate ourselves, how we would view ourselves, how we would hold ourselves, how our lives are to be lived as people who proclaim the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to use a word over and over again. It's the simple word, let, And the word let requires two things. It requires first and foremost that we surrender something. If I have to let something happen, then I have to let go of something. And then the second part of that is the action that let brings in. But we don't want to get lost in all the lets and the five pastoral charges that Paul's going to give here we want to ultimately focus on what it is that he's calling us to be. And so as we look at the text, I want you to try and imagine, if you could, these illustrations, these word pictures. And I promise you it'll all tie together again in Paul's word. But just as we sang, Come Thou Fount, around that same time and era, there was a group of men that founded a a church which we now today know as the Methodist Church. But back then, it was these three men, John and Charles Wesley, they were brothers. Many of our hymns are written by John and Charles Wesley. And the third man was a man by the name of George Whitfield. And these two men in particular, John Wesley and George Whitfield, used to fiercely debate each other on deep doctrinal issues They differed in opinion on the means of grace and salvation, but I think that it's important to look at their example of debate and understand it in its appropriate context. In fact, in the 1700s, they were having one of these such debates on the steps, and the front steps of the church, and back in those days, the media actually covered these things. And the newspapers were there in droves to hear this great debate between these two brothers in Christ. And as they bantered back and forth, George Whitfield annihilated John Wesley. He completely broke down everything that John Wesley um, held. And it just, he, he overwhelmingly dominated the debate. So much so that when the debate ended and the men walked their different directions... The media followed Whitfield. And Whitfield was not known for his desire to engage the media and be quoted in the paper. He was a humble man. But one of the paper people yelled out to him, and said, Pastor Whitfield, do you even believe that you will see John Wesley in the kingdom of heaven? Whitfield stopped. He turned and he engaged the media. And he said, no. No. Oh, the fury, Whitfield judging, he's judging, he's judging John Wesley. This is incredible, I can't believe this is going on. No, I won't see him, because John Wesley will be far too close to the throne room of Jesus Christ for me to ever encounter him. That is my brother in Christ. He is a lover of God, and God is a lover of him. Whitfield would not allow there to be a separation, a division that could take place. Just because they disagree over, over an area of Scripture, Whitfield wanted to be clear that his kindness and his tender-heartedness was first and foremost. Wesley, in later years, would go on as he wrestled, continued to wrestle with these doctrines of grace. And he finally came to a conclusion and literally this quote came from his deathbed where Wesley has this epiphany and he starts to see a contrast in life. And he says, what use would we have for the stars if the sun were to shine all day? I don't even think we'd know to look at them. I don't know that we would understand them if we always had daylight, if we could never see the stars and their ultimate beauty in their backdrop, we would have to see them in the darkness of the sky, the darkness of the heavens reveals the glory of the light. This is the beauty, the contrasted beauty of our Savior. And it's what Paul is going to pastorally encourage and charge us with in this scripture. Is there something, a backdrop, that differentiates you and me from the rest of the world? Or do you merely come into church and see nothing but sun with no backdrop? (coughs) We start to realize that in the simplicity of life, the backdrop of God's space is just like the real world in that he utilizes the backdrop of unrighteousness so that he can reveal the glory of his children of God in a light. So as we look at the text today, I'll remind you of what Bob spoke on two weeks ago just paraphrasing, looking at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hard, their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the backdrop. What Paul's going to do now is he's going to segue with the word therefore in Ephesians 4.25. And he's going to say, therefore, having put away falsehood, Kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The practice of the old man follows his condition, the condition of his heart, as is laid out to us in verses 17 through 19. And so the practices of the new man in verses 25 through 32 should follow his condition that he lays out in verses 20 through 24. But in verses 25 through 32, we find five pastoral charges. Each one has three parts, a negative command, a positive command, and and the reason for the positive command. I want you desperately to see the contrast that exists between the old man and the new man in this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 4, 25, Paul uses the therefore. He's pointing back to the old man that Bob described two weeks ago. And he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This first pastoral charge is to stop deceiving each other, a falsehood. Deception is the mask that false teachers are referred to in verse 14. It's also the falsehood that is referred to the old man in verse 22. And this is the mask of deception that they wear. Instead, the Christian should speak truth, namely what is in harmony with reality. Reality. Here's the harmony of reality. Look if you would, it's up on the, on the screen, Colossians 3, eight and nine. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. My old self is nowhere in comparison to my new self. Old self loved a good fist fight. New self fears being hit in the face. And it puts off those bitternesses anger and wrath. The reason is that the Christian belongs to and must function honestly in a group the church. Truthful speech is essential to the unity in the body. We all know what a lie is, but there's other things that don't seem to always qualify. A half-truth, I want you to know this, is a whole lie. The omission of truth is also an entire whole lie. And I can tell you when it comes to lying, I've said this to my kids, you know, you can do stupid things, you can make poor choices, but if I catch you lying to me, God have mercy on your soul. (laughs) Lying may be an accepted weapon in the warfare that's waged by the world, but it has no place in the Christian life. A lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. To lie to a brother and a sister is you might as well just stab them right in the heart. And Paul is giving us this first admonition to stop deceiving. Which requires us to be transparent in our lives. Oh, how many countless times do I have to hear people when I say, what can I be praying for you? You know, everything's good. Thanks for the lie. (laughs) The second pastoral charge is to avoid sinning when angry. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He wants us to deal with the sin of anger quickly Psalm 4 4 says this be angry and do not sin you see Paul's not saying don't ever be angry he's recognizing that you're going to be angry but you can't let your anger compel you into sin We see that emotion of anger is not what's sinful in itself. When we see Jesus himself in John two thirteen through 16, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That is righteous anger. You can be angry, but the only thing you can be angry about is sin. And that's why Paul puts a timer on it. Because if we would to be angry and not sin, we must therefore only be angry at nothing but sin. Be careful on what you judge to be sin. Because I know that if many of you are like me, you pull onto the freeway of life and you immediately see all this traffic and you say to yourself, who who are all these people on my freeway? I have a place to be. (laughs) Or if you're like me and you drive in your aimless little world kind of rocking out to whatever Christian music's on, having a happy, good old time, and I just cut someone right off. But I give them the traditional wave good. Sorry. But they wave back with that one-fingered salute. And they're angry. I mean, I had a guy just not too long ago who was so angry. He wanted to fight. Old Jeff would have loved a fist fight. New Jeff was like, ah, that's, I'm 53. I don't do that. what, What are you talking about? Pull over. Why would I pull over? And so we're We're going down the thing And and I can tell you Here's what really angers people When you look at them and say I'm sorry I'm praying I'm sorry (laughs) Now Oh my gosh I mean You've done the worst thing in the world And then you have that awkward moment You pull up to the same red light (laughs) It's been fun For a couple miles But now we're here We're side by side and I see his window come down. I'm like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. The window comes down, he's hurling obscenities. I'm going to kill you. you know? And I'm like, I looked at him and I said, Sir, sir, I'm sorry. I cut you off back there. It's 100% my fault. He looked at me and he says, What's wrong with you? He said, sir, I'm not sure how you got up this morning and thought there was going to be a day where no one would cut you off. But apparently I'm that guy. I don't want to fight you. It's easy to lose control of our anger and to let it control us instead of controlling it. Anger becomes sinful when it becomes inappropriate. The way we deal with sinful anger is to confess it as sin. First, uh, First John one nine tells us how to deal with this. It says, "If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." But then Paul gives us that subtle little warning where he says, to not let the sun go down on your anger. Husbands and wives, this is not an opportunity for you to stand outside your fight in the household and say, the sun's almost down, you better get to your apology. (laughs) He's merely giving a figure of speech that emphasizes the need to deal with sin soon. We then see in Ephesians 4.27, it says, and give no opportunity to the devil. It's important to deal with our anger. Because if we don't, we open up a door for Satan to have an opportunity to lead us into further sin. The phrase to give place to the devil means just that, to give him room or scope for action. Anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's a challenge. it leads to this third pastoral charge that Paul gives. The charge is to refrain from stealing, but to labor instead. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul did not mention other benefits of work here. Such as providing for one's own needs and doing something useful. He emphasized the most noble of motives for our labor that we would use it as a means to give to the needy. We struggle with this as people, some struggle more than others. But the word stealing here is the Greek word klepton. That's where we would get the term kleptomaniac. It covers all forms of misappropriation. This verse is a reaffirmation of the teaching of the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, 15, pretty simple, you shall not steal. Deuteronomy 5, 19, and you shall not steal. We don't need to form a Bible study to understand what this means. But we may sometimes be confused at what kind of stealing is being used here. For me, my mind immediately goes to being in, in, in kindergarten and being at a store with my mother where I helped myself to a gingerbread man cookie. And as we're driving home, and we're almost home, and my mom looks back and she says, she says, "Where did you get that gingerbread cookie?" From the store? I didn't pay for that. My gosh, we made a U-turn. We went all the way back to the store where I had to walk in and apologize to the owner of the store and say, I'm sorry, I stole this gingerbread, gingerbread man cookie. And then my mother paid for it. You see, the stealing that we do in the church isn't necessarily in the form of money. It may be that you're stealing from God in the form of time and talent. That God himself has empowered each as one another certain gifts and you're not exploiting those gifts for Christ and his kingdom. Maybe it's possible that you and I, in many ways, are stealing from our God. But what Paul is telling us is that we must reframe from stealing and instead we should work to give to those in need this is one of the marks of the of uh, one of the pillars of the original church to devote themselves to the apostles teaching to prayer and thanksgiving and giving to those in need as they had need you see we may sit here at some point in time and say wow So-and-so donated millions of dollars to some sort of cause. You know who the person I envy? The widow and her mites. The person who walked in and gave everything. Are we differentiating ourselves as a church in this way? Because Paul's going to say in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor." And if you've understood that, then the next thing makes perfect sense. Here's another way. A fourth pastoral charge is to speak good things. We sometimes get this wrong. We mean well in what we're saying. You can come to me with all the kindness on your face, and say, Jeff, you're great, man. You don't sweat that much for a big guy. And you mean it as a compliment. And I'm immediately in a conversation with my wife about a new weight loss program, because you brought that up. But Christians instead should use words to build each other up rather than to tear them down. Words can, in fact, give grace, help, and gratification in the sense that they communicate encouragement and direction and thus enable the hearer of your words to do right. Colossians 4.6 tells us, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The corrupt speech here is condemning is foul talk and not merely idle talk. There's an old story that says this. It is said that a man once came to a friend and asked how he could make amends for falsely accusing him. He told him to put a feather on every doorstep in the entire village. The next day, he told the man to go and collect the feathers The man responded, but that is impossible. The wind has scattered them beyond recall. And so the man says this, so it is with your reckless words. Are you showing patience? Are you calculated in your words? Are you saying words to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your family that are encouraging and edifying? Are they building them up Oh, how it is so beautiful to see a tender-hearted person that says words of encouragement. I had the privilege this last Friday to marry our director of junior high ministry. He and his wife are on their honeymoon. But let me tell you about Jay Branson just for one second. This is a tender-hearted man. This is a lover of Christ. And when he enters the room, he oozes Christ on people. I love the teaching of John MacArthur. I love the teaching of R.C. Sproul. And I have often dreamt of being as knowledgeable as they are, but I'll tell you what, I wish I knew Jesus Christ the way that Jay Branson knows Jesus Christ. Oh, to be a lover of souls, to be that person who enters into the room with words of encouragement. The word in verse 30 starts with the word and. It connects this verse to the former one. And what it's telling us is that we can grieve, we can bring sorrow and pain to the Holy Spirit by our speech. It is inappropriate for us to do so because he is the one by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1, 22 says this. It says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Does that not bless you? Does that not help you to understand that Jesus Christ has put his seal on you and it guarantees, it assures you your entrance into the kingdom of God one day? I hope that that encourages you. When we start to realize that Paul himself is telling us we have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit because of our sin, your little white lie, your half truth, it grieves the Spirit of God. Because what he most desires for you is your surrender to let the Holy Spirit be in charge of your life and to let the Holy Spirit compel you into an action of the fruit of His Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He is the one that is driving. It is not of the fruit of Jeff, but it is the fruit of the Spirit that is the one that should show up at church, that should show up at, at, on, the, on the freeway of life. In his fifth pastoral charge, Paul says for us is to get rid of six vices and adopt three virtues. Bob referenced two weeks ago that if a person went out and had their old tattered coat in the cold and they went to the store and they bought a new coat, You don't take the new coat and put it over the old coat. You take off the old and you put on the new. And the old that needs to go from any of us is let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul listed some of the sins that grieve the spirit, bitterness, It is the opposite of sweetness and or kindness. Colossians 3.19 commands us, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Men, is this the way you act in your home? C.S. Lewis said it best. If one doesn't have manners in the privacy of their own home, then one doesn't have manners at all. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loves the church. It's not just that He sacrificed, it's how He views her. The beauty of the bride is best seen through the eyes of the groom. It's understanding that when Jesus Himself looks at your wife and looks at your bride and looks at the entirety of His whole bride, He sees it as holy and blameless with absolute perfection, not because of something you've done or I've done, but because of everything he's done to purify his bride and his church. It harbors resentment and keeps a record of wrongs done. Right? It doesn't do this. It's easy to come and say, I forgive you, but can you honestly say, I forget what you did? Every Christian might well pray that God would teach him how to forget. If the words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, come out of your mouth, your next prayer should be, Lord, will you help me to forget this so that I can move on in a harmonious relationship. Wrath or rage follows or flows from bitterness and refers to outbursts of uncontrolled passionate frustration. Anger just simply comes from blocked goals, constraints that are keeping me from getting what I selfishly want rather than what God has adequately provided. It is inappropriate, noisy assertiveness and abuse. Clamor, as he refers to, or shouting. Slander refers to words that hurt another person. Malice is bad feelings towards another person and or people and is the source of the other five vices. Someone has defined malice as hard hatred. This verse appears to suddenly contradict verse 26 where Paul permitted anger, but here he seems to condemn it. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce the righteous life that God desires for you. So, as a rule, we should avoid it. But when we encounter it, it can't compel me to sin. I must obey. But the three virtues that Paul brings us to in verse 32. I hope you see this beauty, this contrast. What use would we have for the stars if the sun were to shine all day? Is there something that differentiates this church, this body, you as an individual from the rest of the world, is the backdrop of unrighteousness revealing the glory of light in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And Paul could have used just about anything here. He could have said, he could have gone to the the great old, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is like it. He could have quoted all 10 of the commandments he could have said, let your good works do great things. But look at what Paul says. Be kind. Not let, be. This is what all the lets, the surrender to the Holy Spirit, the trusting in the Holy Spirit, produces and compels a be. Let me be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving as Christ through God has forgiven me. Oh, to be tenderhearted. To not only be a lover of Christ, but a lover of people. A person who says encouraging things. Who doesn't allow their anger to drive them into a pit. We start to understand that what Paul is saying here in the epistle, this letter to the Ephesians, it's characterized by its contrast between the estate of the lost and the estate of the saved. The light of God's church is most noticed when it is contrasted with the backdrop of unrighteousness. Be kind to one another, what a bright light. Be tenderhearted to one another, a bright light. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. This is what differentiates. The glory of God's light is most beautiful when seen in its contrast to the darkness of the world. So it is with his church. There's something that's so appealing, something that is so winsome to those outside of the church. When they see a person simply be kind so winsome to the light that is in a dark world be that light my father lived his entire life till he passed away a year ago hating the church because he saw no difference between the people at church and the people of the world Be the light. Be kind to one another. Be tender hearted with one another. And when you get angry, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Our Father, our loving Savior, we come to you as your humbled creatures asking for your grace and your mercy in our lives, asking, Lord, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to glorify you, to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the world with a kind and tender-hearted spirit, a forgiving heart, and recognizing that we're not here because of anything we've done, but we're here because of what you have done May that be the light we shine. It is in Christ's name that we pray, amen.